Chapter 5, High Priest. In the mid-1950s, the U.S. Air Force was no place for a fighter pilot. Men who flew bombers in World War II were now leading the Air Force, and their philosophy of air power was based on their wartime experience. Big, multi-engine aircraft plunging deeply into enemy territory and dropping bombs. The very existence of the Air Force as a separate and independent branch of the military was founded on the concept of strategic bombing. Bombings were the f bombers were the favorite, some would say only, aircraft of consequence in the 1950s. America's national defense was based on the Eisenhower doctrine of massive retaliation, of having enough aircraft and nuclear bombs to act as a deterrent to any foreign power. Only big bombers could carry nuclear weapons to any spot on the globe. Americans built bomb shelters, thousands of them, and every school child practiced what to do if America were attacked by Soviet nuclear weapons. A limited war, such as Korea, was considered an aberration, not a sign of things to come. Now there could only be escalation between superpowers. Escalation meant nuclear, and nuclear meant the U.S. Air Force. No other branch of the U.S. military had such a solemn responsibility. In 1954, the Air Force was seven years old, and like most seven-year-olds, it was rambunctious, determined to be heard, and always demanding new toys. The Air Force was a procurement-driven. In 1954, the biggest slice of the Pentagon budget, $12 billion, went to the Air Force. The Army received $9.9 billion, and the Navy $8.1 billion. The Air Force continued to receive the largest amount of the Pentagon budget through 1961. Within the Air Force, most of the money went to the Strategic Air Command. SAC was led by General Curtis LeMay, and if anyone wanted to know what God would look like in a fight suit, flight suit, let them gaze upon General LeMay. Flying fighters is fun. Flying bombers is important, he said. LeMay forged the U.S. Air Force into the most powerful military force in history. He had enormous globes straddling bombers, and he had nuclear bombs, and he had the will to use both. If his public comments meant anything, he wanted to use both. At any given time, many of his SAC crews were airborne, loaded with nuclear weapons, flying along the edges of Soviet airspace, awaiting a coded command to wheel toward the heart of the Soviet Union. Other SAC crews were on alert, living in bunkers only yards from their loaded aircraft, ready to run across the tarmac to take off and bomb pre-selected targets on the si other side of the world. A SAC bomber such as a B-47 could fly so high and so fast that, F that no F-86 could reach it. If an F-86 couldn't touch it, the Soviets couldn't touch it because everyone knew that America built the best aircraft in the world. And because SAC officers had such great responsibilities, they were promoted faster than anyone else in the airport. Air Force. They were responsible for America's safety. And by keeping America safe, they were keeping the free world safe. SAC crews were the chosen few, the anointed ones. Peace is our profession, was a SAC motto as it prepared for Armageddon. Thus, during the 1950s, the primary mission of fighter aviation became intercepting enemy bombers and delivering tactical nuclear weapons. Fighter aircraft in Europe were cocked and locked, sitting on runways, pilots trapped in the cockpits with small nuclear bombs bolted to the belly. If war broke out, the job of the fighters was to take out targets too small for a B-47 crew to worry about. Fighter pilots spent most of their time training for the air-to-ground, pilots called it air-to-mud, mission. Over and over, they practiced 30-degree and 45-degree dive bombing, skip bombing, and strafing. SAC generals believed the best use of fighter aviation was a mini-SAC. Fighter pilots who, taught, who talked of dogfights were relics of bygone days. The first air-to-air -air missiles were in the pipeline, and there were whisperings that these missiles could be fired from 10 miles away. Missiles could blow up an enemy aircraft before the enemy pilot even saw the American fighter. The next generation of fighters, it was argued, would not have guns. The day of airborne gunslingers was over. But they remained one place where the flame of fighter aviation was kept alive. One spot in America where the fighter pilots still reigned supreme. One more remote and almost forgotten place where the spirit of attack was implanted in brave hearts. It was literally and figuratively out in the desert. Nellis.
Nellis was in one of the least populated and most remote, remote parts of America, almost as if it exiled there by the bomber generals. <clears throat> the air was parched, the wind relentless, and the heat unbearable. Harsh desert and bleak mountains almost surrounded the base. And here and there were spaving remains of abandoned mining towns. In the Air Force pecking order of the 1950s, Nellis was at the bottom of the list. An officer assigned to Nellis knew his chance for promotion was limited, but to a small group of men, none of this mattered. Nellis was the home of a fighter pilot, and all fighter pilots wanted to do was strap on a single engine jet and go romping across the heavens. The Atomic Energy Commission began using Frenchman's Flat, part of the Nellis bombing rage, to detonate nuclear weapons. The explosions always were announced in advance, and one of the most popular pastimes in nearby Las Vegas was watching the mushroom clouds climb high into the desert air. It was not unheard of for fighter pilots to zoom skyward after dropping his bombs, see a nuclear blast, seeing a nuclear blast downrange, get on the radio and say, look what I did, before going to sky dancing across the desert. Words such as Tonopah and Sunrise Mountain and Indian Springs and Texas Lake and Green, and Green Spot began to creep into fighter pilot lexicon. Drop like markers to let the listener know the speaker had been to Nellis. Nellis. To a fighter pilot, the very word was magic. Much of the land in southern Nevada was owned by the government, and the year-round good weather meant southern Nevada was perfect for dogfighting. In addition to government-owned land, Nellis had rights to the airspace over almost one million acres called the Nellis Range. Airspace was not as controlled then as it is today, and if Nellis pilots wandered off range, it did not matter too much. Summer temperatures on the range regularly reached 110 or 120, sometimes even 130 degrees. To this blast furnace, the best young pilots in the Air Force were sent to have their imperfections burned away and to be hammered into the pure gold that was a fighter pilot. To a fighter pilot, no other place had the mystique of this distant and lonely outpost. There was Nellis, and there was the rest of the world. Sachs bombers might be the glamour boys, but to a fighter pilot, flying a B-47 or a B-52 was the aviation equivalent of being a bus driver. Bomber pilots were cautious, methodical team players who climbed high, motored along for half a day, dropped their bombs, often without seeing the target, and came home. The man who drove this aluminum overcast was not even called a pilot. He was the aircraft commander, and he had a co-pilot, engineer, navigator, and bombardier, a crew to do all the things a fighter pilot did by himself. Sack pilots were the bomber pukes. Then there were the test pilots over at Edwards Air Force Base in California. The media loved these guys, but the fighter pilots snorted in derision at every newspaper article. Sure, test pilots flew hot new experimental airplanes, but they also had little clipboards strapped to their knees, and on the clipboards were the altitudes and the airspeeds they were to fly and the instructions for every maneuver to be formed in little boxes into which they put check marks when the maneuvers were completed. Test pilots were marionettes whose strings were pulled by the controllers on the ground. Golden arms, who could display little initiative, and who could never cut loose and bank and yank and turn and burn and fly, fling themselves around the sky the way fighter pilots did. Pilots at Edwards went to their little bar up in the high desert and boasted about pushing the outside of the envelope. But it was big to talk about a small envelope. In the mid-1950s, most of the test pilots started out as fighter pilots, but they were fighter pilots gone astray. More and more of the test pilots were engineers who were conservative, anal, by-the-book types, not hell-raising warriors. Test pilots were evaluators. Fighter pilots were applicators. Test pilots were pessimists who tried to find something wrong with an airplane. Fighter pilots were optimists who looked for something great in an airplane. Test pilots were detached from the airplane they flew. Fighter pilots fell in love with their airplane. Test pilots talked of going into space. Space? And in a capsule? You don't fly a fucking capsule. You sit in it and you watch the instruments. You're a passenger. To hell with space.
fighter pilots wanted to get on an enemy six and hose the son of a bitch. Fighter pilots held the golden arms, and in almost as much contempt as they did for sack pilots, test pilots were Edward Pukes. Bomber Pukes and Edwards Pukes ranked only slightly above people who did not fly, the non-rated bureaucrats known as Staff Pukes. The motto at Nellis was, Every Man a Tiger, and to be called a tiger by a senior fighter pilot was the ultimate accolade. Confident and intelligent men would damn near pop the rivets out of their aircraft during an air-to-air combat training just to have one of the Nellis cadre not approvingly and call them Tiger. To be called a Tiger meant you had a stainless steel testicles that dragged to the ground and struck sparks when you walked. To be called a Tiger meant you were a pure fighter pilot and that you would not hesitate to tell a bird colonel to get fucked. Air-to-air training was mostly shooting at a towed target called a dart, but there was always time for a tail chase. Young fighter pilots not only pushed the outside edge of the envelope, they broke through it and operated in the pulsing red danger zone beyond. Pilots scorched across the desert so low they ripped the tops off Joshua trees and then dropped ever lower and kicked up plumes of sand and came back to base with cactus wedged in the wing roots. They flew about 90 miles north of Nellis and met over a little oasis of grass and cottonwood trees they called the Green Spot the only green for a hundred miles in any direction and easily identified from the air. One of the first brothels in Nevada was located at the green spot, and oftentimes the employees sunbathed nude. Over the green spot, pilots called fight, fights on, and fought down to the ground and back up again and down again, all the time banking and yanking, turning and burning as they maneuvered to get on the other pilot's six. They called it rat racing, or playing grab ass, or getting in furball. One aircraft, one seat, one engine, one pilot, the most lethal combination of man and machinery ever devised. It only added to the allure of the shimmering fantasy land of the desert that it was one of the most dangerous places on earth. Rarely did a week go by that a fighter pilot did not crash. And when a fighter crashed at 400 knots, it was for keeps. When a pilot augured in, screwed the pooch, fucked the duck, and bought the farm, then the bass siren wailed, and the blue car drove slowly, and the wives stood in the windows, and the chaplain consoled and hung the flag at half-staff. But it always happened to someone else, never to the best fighter pilot in the world. And if you ask, have to ask who the best is, it sure as hell ain't you. Fighter pilots fly and their fangs, with their fangs out and their hair on fire, and they look death in the face every day. And you ain't shit if you ain't done it. Nellis was a place where young men did, young men did things at 30,000 feet they would remember all their days. Nellis was Valhalla in the desert. This was the world Boyd was about to enter. The world he would come to dominate. Ta-da. Ta-da. And that's Boyd mm-hmm. by Robert Corum mm-hmm. about Colonel John Boyd, mm-hmm. uh, the world's greatest fighter pilot. Yeah. 42nd Boyd. Mm. And he comes up 42nd Boyd. He was actually more 22nd Boyd, but they thought it was even too arrogant for a fighter pilot, so he said, fine, 40 seconds. Really? <laughs> I'll give you 20 seconds? I'll give you 20 seconds. Oh my goodness. And uh, pretty awesome. Wow. And uh, what's funny is the, the move in Top Gun mm-hmm. where he, I'm going to put on my brakes and let him go by, uh-huh. that was the move really? started by Boyd because nobody would, mm. and he would just, and he would put so much pressure uh-huh. on, like, because he, he broke a couple tails <laughs> and lost some other stuff. Um, but I mean, like, the, this is the Air Force stories that I was raised off of. You know, or, or military stories, and you know, like I said, I was I was worried about it over glorifying, mm-hmm. but 
that's that's our history. This is where we come from. Yeah, and it's not so much like glorifying war or anything like that, but it's really telling like the personality and uh, motivation and just who that man is, who is that fighter pilot, and what it takes. It's a it's a different breed. It's what you know. You you could just as easily exchange fighter pilot for a PJ. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So it was a. Uh, you know, and if it doesn't like give you kind of a little bit of excitement, you're like, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. then then I don't know what will excite you. I mean, you talk about freedom. Oh yeah. I mean, dogfights in the sky and just do kind of having being feral, feral pilots just <laughs> doing whatever they want. What's gonna untouchable? Yeah, well, that's, that's crazy. That's... And PJs too. Yeah, the whole thing. Yeah. So we we're we're gonna read more of this book. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to give you like a, a taste of mm-hmm. like what this book is like. I mean, he gets into details. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he was a great fighter pilot, but he was also a mathematician, scientist, uh, worked out all the new thrust vectors for mm-hmm. jets and how to get more power and more lift out of, and, and G's on turns and invented all this kind of stuff that helps people even today mm-hmm. survive mm-hmm. at, uh, High speed G's and turns and twists and flips and and all because this guy had a brain, yeah, put it to use, mm. delivered his purpose and was the Sun Tzu of air warfare, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, and and modern warfare and ground combat because, um, like when you heard in the introduction, mm-hmm. the Marine Corps and the Army both based their Tactics off of a fighter pilot's thoughts and ideas. One man. One man. A fighter pilot. A fighter pilot from the United States Air Force. From the Air Force. That nobody in the Air Force <laughs> even knows exists. Because he, he made the Air Force angry at one point. And like Billy Mitchell, if you make the Air Force angry, you're it's toast. Not the Air Force, see what happens. Mm. It will turn and burn you quick. Yeah, so don't, don't ever turn on the Air Force. <laughs> Um, wow, that was really great to read. Yeah, but I loved it. For me, the, the part of it was, if you wanted to know what God looked like, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm whoa. like, whoa, okay. LeMay in a, in a flight, flight suit. suit? Yeah. Mm. Curious to know what that looks like. Mm. He, was, he was a big, burly kind of dude. Mm-hmm. Very big shoulders, mm-hmm. tall. Mm-hmm. 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 Wow. And then I think of... Uh, uh, oh, I can't think of his name. Robin Olds. That's mm-hmm. the he was a fighter pilot in Vietnam mm. and Korea, and he's he's got the the big mustache. He's oh, the really? one that started No Shave November. Oh no, kidding! Except for took it even further. But Robin Olds and that dude, his father was a famous general. Uh-huh. Um, just another good fighter pilot. There's a lot of good fighter pilots out there. Good uh-huh. stories, you know, uh-huh. dog fights and. Air Force history. Yeah. The stuff you see in the movies, but yeah. for real. Pretty fun. Pretty Very fun. exciting. Very exciting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we'll uh, okay. we'll leave it at that because we, we have to go surfing now. It's time for the afternoon surf. It's time for the afternoon surf and the way the wind has died down and the rain is gone. And mm-hmm. so uh, Robert Quorum, mm-hmm. the book is called Boyd. Mm-hmm. Check it out. I think you'll like it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a good audible. The, oh, it's a very good audible. 
narrator is really good. The narrator is very mm-hmm. good. Keeps you in there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For 1995, Shanda will read it for you. Yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> true. Yeah, so. that's about right. 1995. I will read it. Thank you for listening, and we will chat with you later. Booyah. Booyah.